Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Four Corners Podcast on the Pit Podcast Network. My name is Shad. I'm joined tonight by Matt and Brad. How are you guys doing? There was dead silence there for a moment. I'm actually doing quite good. Um, I'm doing very well. You know why that is, guys? Why is that? Because based upon uh, episode count, this is our dirty 30. This is episode... Episode three zero, the big three zero. What makes thirty so dirty then? <laughs> I don't know. I just thought it would be fun. So, uh, in honor of our dirty thirty, I have a I have a nice refreshing uh, adult beverage in front of me. Uh, ah. I bought I bought an advent calendar, <laughs> uh, but of beer. So <laughs> it's twenty four days of, of delicious beer. I've been uh, hearing a story lately about a guy with a whiskey advent calendar too. Oh wow, that's pretty aggressive. Um, I just did beer, and tonight's is a uh, it's a Doppelbach by Star Hill Brewery in lovely Charlottesville, Virginia. Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, very fine uh, city. It's where I got married, so I'm quite partial. I've had Star Hill before. This is a pretty good beer, and all in honor of our Dirty Thirty <laughs> so <laughs> for how, episode thirty. How does how does a beer advent calendar work? Do you still like open the little like door yeah. or whatever? Oh, no, no, no. It, it, it came in like a box, a big cardboard box, a heavy cardboard box. It's 24 beers. Uh, and they're all like individually wrapped so you don't know what it is. And you can unwrap it each day and you get to see what delicious craft beer you have to drink that day. It's pretty awesome. So you there know, you go. You know, I've never been able to develop a taste for beer. Uh, I'm quite partial to... All, almost all forms of alcohol <laughs> but uh i do like beer because there's so many different flavors and complex tastes uh but yeah it's not for everyone some, some people don't really care for alcohol at all some people just like wine or hard liquor i was going to say i'm curious to see if uh, a local delicacy makes it in there that would be kentucky bourbon barrel ale which is beer that is made in old bourbon barrels you know that's not as uncommon as you might think that's kind of like a thing uh there's quite i've had quite a few beers that have been like beer uh bourbon barrel aged uh and they're usually pretty good although they can be pretty strong there's actually a brewery that's about 45 minutes to an hour outside of dc that they have a stout that they age it in bourbon barrels and it is strong like it's like 14% or something like that. It's something crazy. Wow, so you can, you can have like, yeah, you can have something, you can have like one of those and, and be like, okay, I, I, I cannot have any more or else I am going to be completely unable to drive anywhere. But yeah, 40% isn't that crazy. Uh, in, in Belgium, uh, I actually, my wife and I went to Belgium earlier this year. Like it's pretty common to have beers that are at least like 10%. That's not what I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say 14%. That's not that uncommon in D.C. People get smashed here. Uh, People do drink here. (laughs) A lot of people people on the hill. Is a standard beer like 7%? No. Usually like a regular standard beer. I mean, even like a Bud Light will be... I guess it could be anywhere from like 4.5 to 5.5%. Um can go a little up. Like once you start getting like seven percent or more, that's a stronger beer. Like the beer I'm drinking tonight is a Doppelbach. Uh, that's it's it's seven point seven percent. 
okay. which is a little bit higher. Um, can't really drink too many of these. If you drank like a six pack of these in a night, you'd be yeah, you'd, you'd be. probably be, you'd probably be feeling pretty toasty by the end. But I'm more of a I'm more of a hard cider type person for my um, drinking purposes. See, I don't really care for cider. It has to be like a Magners, like Irish cider or something like that. Otherwise, I think it's like way too sweet for me. Uh, there's a there's a I don't know if it's local to here. I know they're more like uh they're harder to find. It's called Cider Boys, and they do like seasonal stuff. And <laughs> Cider Boys. Yeah, they do like they do see they do they have their standard stuff, but then they have like their seasonals. So like right now they'll probably have like a cinnamon apple bark one. Hmm. I had a cider last night. The the advent calendar beer for last night was actually a cider uh, that was brewed with gingerbread spices. And let me tell you, it didn't work. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. That That's, doesn't even uh, sound good. It wasn't. I, I, I drank like half of it. And then I was like, I, I when, who am I trying to kid here? I can't do this. Yeah, these people here rave about that... Um that alcoholic root beer and i don't like it i don't like root beer in general yeah well root beer is the only beer i can drink because i'm a medical teetotaler so i sat here very quietly for the conversation yeah all right so that's so sad you live in uh you live in i live in bourbon country yeah yeah the home of the bourbon so that's just part of life anyway we want to thank you all for joining us on the Four Corners podcast. Um, before we get started, we want to get our. Uh, we want to tell you all we're on social media. We're on several different social medias. We'd love to hear from you. Um, give us a follow, shoot us a message, post us a thing, whatever. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we'll start with Facebook, right, Brad? Yep, you can like us on Facebook. It is Four Corners. That is the number four. And then Corners is one word, podcast. Give us a like, uh, leave us a comment. And then, uh, Matt, you usually handle the the Little Bluebird network, don't you? That's right. We are on the Twitters, as people call it. Uh, We are at Podcast Four Corners. That's the capital P, the number four, Podcast Four Corners. And guys, we had a a tremendous moment recently. Uh, Multiple... uh, IWGP tag team champion, former IWGP champion, former uh, Triple Crown champion, Satoshi Kojima liked one of our tweets. That that's fame, bro. That's fame. That is the biggest moment we've had since somebody else commented on our first episode posting. Exactly. But we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, we're also on Instagram. Instagram doesn't let you. Um, doesn't let you put spaces in, so it's the number four corners podcast. Uh, I post our new episodes there, and uh, we have we have an email in case yeah, social media is not your thing, right, Brad? Yep, uh, you can email us at pitpodcast25 at gmail.com. We, <clears throat> uh, you know, we'd love to hear from you guys. Give us a follow. Shoot us a message, whatever. It, it would be great. We are all also now officially affiliates with Collar and Elbow. Uh, gear for wrestlers and wrestling fans by wrestlers and wrestling fans. Use the promo code 
the number four corners podcast and save 10% on your order. Um, <clears throat> hey, it's good stuff. It's They're comfortable. They're um, well-made. Most of the designs are pretty tasteful. Every now and then you get one that's not, but that's because it's not supposed to be. It's supposed to be an over-the-top thing. It's run by good people. They're working hard getting orders out right now because it's that time of year. <clears throat> so that's our first shout-out. And our second shout-out I alluded to a few minutes ago. Isn't that right, Matt? Yeah, our uh, our most important shout-out is to Epico Cologne. Uh, Epico apparently is a big fan of Jimmy's Famous Seafood, <laughs> uh, which is apparently a seafood place in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, I'm going to have to check this out. I, didn't, I wasn't even aware of this place, but now that Epico is obsessed with it, I have to go as well. Maybe you can run into Epico there. That would be amazing. And not get a restraining order in the process. Look, they have uh, they sell crab cakes like many other places in Baltimore, Maryland do. Uh, yeah. But I am super excited to try it. So hopefully well, I would run into Epico there. Let us know how it goes. I'd All be right. real curious to hear. So anyway... We, uh, with all of that out there, we want to let you guys know we're going to be doing, uh, going back to, I think, one of the hallmarks of our podcast that we haven't done for a while. We're going to be going back to What a Maneuver. We talk about specific moves that you see in pro wrestling, notable users, notable variations, and just talk about the kinds we like and the ones that seem to have made a big mark. And tonight, that move, that maneuver is none other than the one, the only, the Moonsault. Basic Moonsault? Well, if I were to phrase it this way, it just doesn't sound as impressive, but a backflip splash. However, there have been so many cool variations over the years that we can't wait to unpack all these different ideas that have gone into it and all the people who've just made it so special. So <clears throat> with, uh, with that being said, I think tonight what we'll do is I want to start and ask you guys, who do you think is the person that does the moonsault that to you is, when you think of a moonsault, is the definitive version? There's only one answer to this, and it's the Great Muda. <laughs> Uh, I would have to agree. Uh, first off, good, uh, sorry to cut you off, Brad. Okay. Um, I actually did not know this. I was I was kind of researching this for the the podcast to see just about the moonsault, and apparently it was created by Mondo Guerrero. That's what I'm reading. Yeah, that's what that, I saw. I, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, um, I think uh, Mondo and Chavo are a very underrated tag team that a lot of people haven't seen if Mm -hmm. um you spend any time watching like a southern territory from like the early to mid 80s you'll probably see them pop up for some at least some small amount of time were were they in were they in world class or i think they did world class i know they did at least a little bit of mid-south for a while hmm and I bet they popped through Florida and um, Southwest, whatever that one that used to that predated WWE on USA. I know they did that one. 
Which uh, one was Lasertron? <laughs> was that, that Hector? Um, was that Hector? Yeah. For the, for those who don't uh, who aren't aware, like way way back in like the mid to late eighties, Hector Guerrero wore like a mask. Uh, was it? It was in the Jim Crockett Promotions in yeah. the NWA, and his name was Lasertron. And I don't know what I don't know what the gimmick was supposed to be. Maybe was like it? a robot of some sort, like a futuristic robot, but. Uh, I was entertained because he participated in like the Jim uh, Crockett uh, Memorial Cup Tag Team Tournament, which I had a, a an old school VHS of, and I, I loved it. I think um, I remember he did like some random WCW shows in like '97. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did actually. Like really uh, late, like late uh, '90s WCW, he did do some some matches. Yeah. I think he actually won a belt. I think he might have won like the junior belt as Lasertron. Hmm. His tag team partner was actually Boogie Woogie Man, Jimmy Valiant. Oh, oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I liked oh, him man. because when I when I was a kid, like, I mean, I was watching this when I was really like a teenager, really, because uh, that's when I, I kind of got into like the tape trading stuff. But uh, it was still kind of fun to watch him because he he was acrobatic um but i hated i hated jimmy valiant and that still hasn't changed to this date do you think um do you think uh do you think to be jimmy valiant's um tag partner in those days you had to give him the old glass uh, bottom boat <laughs> i don't know that people know that story and i and i don't know if we can relay it on this podcast was that the rock and roll express that that involved i think it was actually I think allegedly there was them walking in on that, leaving uh, yeah. in terror. And I believe no, I believe one got sick and left, and one stayed and watched. Um, oh, I, you're I right. I think it was Robert that, Gibson. Yeah, because Ricky, <laughs> the story I heard, is Ricky Morton got out. You know, Robert Gibson seems like he'd be into that weird shit. So maybe. Yeah. Didn't uh, did, isn't Sylvester Stallone also a fan? I, th- I think the rumor is that was the case. Yes. Wow. I don't want. I don't want to know that about Rocky. <clears throat> so the moon salt. <laughs> well, that's right. We, yeah. <laughs> we're talking about the <laughs> So yeah, great Muda had a version of the moon salt, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but Muda's version, you see a lot of people. Like for example, when when Kurt Angle would throw one, he he'd almost kind of like seem to float back into it and to to land on his <clears throat> to you know land on his chest and stomach. But Muda stuck his landing. There's a snap. There's a certain snap to the Muda one that no one else like has ever been able to reproduce to my liking. Because like the Muda one felt like he was just like. There was a certain viciousness to his that other ones don't have. A lot of guys, it feels like they're just landing, and it felt like Mudo was really like, like you said, sticking the landing. Yeah, um, there's, you know, a moonsault has been, at least in my mind, it's been a it's been a really good move for a lot of guys who can fly, but it just doesn't seem to have quite the same impact as the way Muda did it. Which would believe would lead me to believe that that's um, why his knees got as jacked up as they did. You know, he he did the moonsault until like last year. Did he do it in his very last match? 
I think so. Yeah. For for those who aren't aware, uh, Muta had to go, he had to go like I think double knee replacement. I think it was both knees. Uh, in part because of the years of moonsaults, uh, just wrecked his knees, and still claims that he's going to be making a comeback. But you know, he's he's a remarkable person. I think I think at some point that we need to we need to discuss two thousand and one and how he completely reinvented himself as a wrestler. To oh yeah, cover for his physical limitations and how that extended his career. Yeah, well, I mean, didn't he? Didn't he um, develop the Shining Wizard explicitly so he wouldn't have to do well, the uh, the moonsault all the time? Yeah, yeah. He, he and he also he was going bald and he shaved his head to coincide with like the new style. And he had basically a career like resurgence. He even won Wrestler car- of the Year in the Observer for 2001, I think. Yeah, even a career like Renaissance, he actually, when he changed his style and kind of changed his look and everything, he did put out some tremendous work. Like early yeah. early 2000s, uh, Great Muta or KG Muto, uh, he, was pr- he was actually quite good. I don't know quite when like the drop-off was. About uh, 2003, 2004. Even then, I would still say he's pr- he was probably pretty decent. Yeah. Um, th- yeah. He, ha- he has one of my favorite moments of the 2000s, though, is um, <clears throat> when he beats Nakamura for the IWGP title in, like, 2008 or so, mm-hmm. which is a big deal because he hadn't really wrestled for the company that much. Like, he's hitting... He keeps hitting Nakamura with uh, the Shining Wizard and just can't do it. Mm-hmm. And then he finally is just like, fuck it. And he like grabs him. He does like the side backbreaker right up to the top. Moonsault like wins it. And the crowd like loses it when he get when he does like the backbreaker. Does the um, was the Shining Wizard kind of the start of a lot of the kind of running or flying knee finishes we've been seeing? Oh, in every the- every every idiot on the indie scene had like rip that off like in the two years like between like 2002 and like 2005 like every one did the shining wizard well yeah. but i i'm not i don't necessarily mean that i mean like um because <clears throat> we you know nakamura's kinshasa known at the time as the balmaye and brian's flying knee and and that sort of stuff can we trace like can we trace those things back to the Shining Wizard? Or I don't know if that's fair, but I just know that when he debuted that, then all of a sudden everyone was using it all of a sudden on like the indie scene. It got super annoying. It's still kind of annoying now. Well, and then it then it turned into the go to sleep after the Shining Wizard. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then what? Then the last couple of years it's been a ripcord, whatever you can think of, right? Uh yeah, there was something between there though. What was, what was the really obnoxious thing before the ripcord got to be big? It was. Can't think of it, man. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, the super kick's also highly overused right now because everyone wants to be like the young bucks, but they don't. Well, understand the charm of it. There's some guys who can who can. Who can use it? But uh, I don't know. It, there, there are a lot of people using it that shouldn't be. 
You know, you know what's funny about Muda though is I just recently, a couple years ago, watched like um, a lot of 1989 NWA television, uh-huh. and they're they're playing him up as a heel, and it really didn't work because you stuck this guy in front of a bunch of work rate fans in the South, and like by like the end of the first month, he's getting like cheered for his big moves. That does seem like kind of a miscalculation. I remember I when I watched uh, like some of those uh, late '80s uh, NWA. Well, I guess when it was kind of transitioning into WCW, and I saw him. Uh, yeah, he was he was presented as this you know like the evil foreigner heel, but he he was just so awesome. Like his moves were like so crisp, and he. In the context of like today, even like a regular like two hundred five cruiserweight match, you'll see a ton of flashy stuff. Uh, he didn't even do anything terribly flashy, but he no one was doing that at the time, and I he mean, was doing it like so like crisp and so quickly that it just looked amazing, and you couldn't help but like mark out for it. Like when he would do just like the uh, like the backflip into the like the elbow in the corner, or he would do oh, like yeah. the spinning elbow onto the ground. It looked amazing, and I and, that I, I became a, a fan of Mudo back then. Yeah, and even it, like the 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 suicide dive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was just quite. I mean, like I said, he was getting cheered like within a couple weeks because the fans were just like, "I want to see him do like the crazy stuff that no one else does." See, you don't have to do a lot of crazy stuff for. <laughs> Because every every worker is going to have some signature stuff they go to. It doesn't have to be crazy if you can do it well. So, you know, you're talking about a perfect example of that. Perfect example. So, Muda has now. There are some other guys from that time period that that threw uh, that threw a pretty good moonsault. Um, yep. I believe and- one of you guys was really excited about this option. Yes, let us talk about Leaping Lanny Poffo. <laughs> Leaping Lanny Poffo. Yep. I actually don't think I've ever seen him do his version of the the moonsault. He did it to Hulk Hogan on Saturday night's main event. Really? Yeah, in their match that Hogan kicked out. If I saw that, I had no recollection of it. I was... Because they had that mini feud in, like early 90 around like the Hogan warrior stuff. Hmm. Let me see if I'm just looking it up on YouTube to see if like you can quickly see him doing it. I'm looking at that myself. Um, I've found, yeah, I've found one where he does it to Hogan. It's interesting because his has a little more of a snap, uh, in the clip that I found it's in black and white and he doesn't come entirely off the top. He's still got one foot on the middle rope. But, uh... His is know, a much more calculated move. Well, that that would lead into him later being the genius, right? Yeah. <laughs> he's still throwing that, um... He's still throwing that move, isn't he? Yeah, I, I love, I love Leapin' Lanny. One of the most... Sadly, underrated guys of the the eighties. Yeah. Well, yeah. Especially how he was actually pretty talented, and they mostly just wasted him 
as like a manager. Uh, occasionally, I guess he would do like some prelim wrestling stuff. But I mean, if you watch, if you watch, um, if you watch like uh, any house show from like eighty six to eighty eight, he's probably like the first match on the card. Yeah, they'd have him do like a twenty minute match with like Jim Powers or something. Yeah. Or he'd like it'd be like Ron Bass or like some new heel because I think it there, I think it went like SD Jones, then it was Leap and Lanny, then I think it turned into Coco Beware eventually. Hmm. It's intri- and just trivia in case we have listeners that don't know this. I imagine most of you probably do, but um, Leap and Lanny Pofo, the younger brother of the one, the only Macho Man. So. I also love uh, in ICW when he was going around in like the suit of armor. Oh yeah, I remember that. You know, this is actually—I'll uh, admit this—I uh, was not aware that they were brothers. Really? Until, until like years and years later. It was probably like in the early two thousands is when I found out that they were brothers, and I was like, "Holy shit!" I had no idea. <laughs> Well, I I, I, I kind of have a story for you on that. Um, this is kind of tough because uh, a couple of days ago, we, we kind of had the one-year remembrance of my father-in-law passing away. Um, but my father-in-law worked in central Kentucky, and he spent a while um, selling trucks and it wasn't just like pickups he sold big trucks he knew a lot about him he was very knowledgeable he sold a ring truck to randy savage and lanny poffo and so that was a really he, he told me about that once and that was a really uh that was a really cool story to get to hear i hear randy savage talked like he did on <laughs> in promos like in real life yeah, that's what I that's what I heard too. Is that he he always just talked that way. You know, it's um, interesting if you go back to Memphis. Um, it really shows how what steroids can do for a physique is. Pofo's Lanny's actually bigger than Savage when you go to like old Memphis footage. Mm-hmm. Which, since it does involve a uh, leaping Lanny a little bit, one of my favorite angles from Memphis is. When uh, Savage pile drives Ricky Morton through a table at the Mid South Coliseum. <laughs> oh my God! That's... Oh my God! I've never seen. How that. did he get out of the building alive? And this isn't like this isn't like the that cheap like like pressed board that they use now. It was like a hard like green one. Yeah, you can find it on. It's on YouTube if you look for it. But you're in Memphis. Doing a pile driver to Ricky Morton through a table, you put all of those together, and I'm surprised that they didn't riot and set the building on fire. Yeah, wow. I'm kind of surprised too. So, wow, that's man. So I d- I did some more checking on some clips, and it looks like that. Uh, Leap and Lanny's version of the moonsault always had the one foot on the top, one foot on the middle. I think uh, he called. I think they called him his a moonsault press too. Did they? Okay. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, you know, I, I found a clip of him doing it at fifty years old. So. 
Yeah, I just saw that one too. You know, it's uh, <clears throat> it's it's really impressive um, to to see someone still doing that. I there was no way in the world I was going to try and do that. That was not going to happen. I didn't have a crash pad to practice on or anything. So. So then, um, just to just to move on, I think the most popular variation of the move is the springboard moonsault. And I think if we're going to talk about a springboard moonsault, like the first two names that come to mind for me are Ultimo Dragon and Chris Jericho. Yeah, um, Ultimo Dragon was actually next on my list for the uh, Asai moonsault, and then Jericho's lion salt was was right here. Um, yeah, I, I actually have those on my list as well. Nice. Let's break down uh, what makes those a little bit different. Um, what what's what makes, uh, for example, Ultimo Dragon's moonsault a little bit different than than your standard moonsault? Uh, well, he uses the ropes to jump off. His also happens to be to the outside most of the time. So what he would do mm. is get an opponent on the outside. He'd get on the ring apron, and then he'd springboard off the ropes onto the ground. His was kind of a no-look uh, thing as well. So, as a you know, he didn't, like, look over his shoulder whenever he sprung. It was just kind of, I'm going back and I'm rotating and somebody better be there. Yeah, he put a lot of faith in his opponent to actually be there, like, in position, ready to catch him. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it, it's it, uh, Go ahead. Go ahead, man. Oh, no, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. But I was going to say that aspect of it reminds me of, um, of when Kofi Kingston does the trust fall. Because he doesn't know where he's going uh, until he gets there. And Dragon didn't know if he was catching the guy square until he had already, basically until he was upside down. So you got to figure he gets to that point. And he's like, oh, okay, he's there or, oh, no, until he crashes. <clears throat> so it, you saw a lot of guys um, in in mid-late area. Yeah, in mid-late uh, WCW Cruiserweights doing versions of that, uh, the assigned moonsault, which was kind of weird because Dragon was there for it. You know, he's uh, he's kind of sadly a forgotten figure of the 90s. Ultima Dragon? Yeah. Is he even still wrestling anymore? Uh, I don't know. It's probably look. a very... For us being wrestling podcast experts, that's probably a, <laughs> uh, a, uh, a telling question, but I, I don't really hear about him almost at all anymore. He did... He does... I mean, he did a lot of... Let's see. He does, like... I mean, he does Lucha a lot, but I don't know if he's been active there. Mm. Let's see. He's 51 like he's, years old. Looks like he's done some All Japan recently. Looks like he's... But they don't really have much on him. Mm. Look at his cage match profile. Ultima Dragon really... I think WCW did a lot of things right with their mid-card in the mid-90s. Uh, and giving him a really good sustained push, I think, was one of the things that was awesome. Like, yeah. he, and they didn't just book him purely as a great cruiserweight, which of course they they did book him as that. But 
Uh, I want to recall, didn't he, didn't he like trade like the, the TV title back and forth? Like they actually had him pretty established like in the mid card. Yeah, he yeah. traded it with Steven Regal. Yeah. And he might his, have had it be outside of that as well. There's something in my mind about that, but. Yeah, he had some really great matches there, and they actually they didn't book him as just like oh look this little cruiserweight you can only do cruiserweight matches like they booked him as like a legit kind of threat, um, yeah, which I really liked. And he actually, this is going way back. I remember like in the, one of the first pay per views I actually convinced my parents to actually buy me. It was 1993, uh, the WCW New Japan Super Show three. Uh, and I convinced them because it was back then like for the extraordinarily dirt cheap price of $10 for the pay-per-view. On, wow. Uh, yeah, when most pay-per-views in the early 90s, they didn't get as expensive as they they would get. I think most pay-per-views were like in the 20 to $30 range. This was only $10. So I had made like the hard sell and 10 bucks wasn't much. So uh, my parents ordered that for me. I taped it. Like I watched that that show that pay per view like many times over the years, and the opener for that one was actually Ultimo Dragon versus uh, Jushin Thunder Liger. Oh and, wow! Yeah, I'd have to rewatch that match. I'm sure it's still kind of a good match. Uh, I'm pretty sure that now, like 25 years later, it's probably dated, and you'll see. I'm sure more crazy stuff from like a Young Bucks match nowadays, but. It blew me away at the time because they were doing all sorts of like submission moves and and high flying moves that I had never seen before. He wrestles primarily for All Japan. Interesting. He has come over here a couple times this year, though. He wrestled um, he wrestled Joey Janela for where is that? And then he wrestled in um, AIW in Cleveland. Okay. Yeah, Dragon was was really a notable figure and the thing that I think I I liked the most about watching uh, Ultimo Dragon was his Dragon Sleeper finish was really cool and he was really good at sinking that in uh from unexpected uh, angles. So I there were cases I, I think I remember a case of seeing him do a moonsault into the Dragon Sleeper. Which he, was, wrestled, he wrestled Pentagon Jr. this year. Ooh, I might have to mm. see if that's on DVD somewhere. Now, one other thing that's no, that uh, I will note about uh, Ultimo Dragon. Not Ultimate Dragon, like WCW kept screwing up, but Ultimo Dragon. Was he was one of my go-to picks in the <clears throat> THQ AKI, AKI uh, WCW games. Because oh, wow. he had he had the move he had a fast move set with moves that flowed into each other really well uh, and really good for repositioning people. So you know, long live the dragon. Also, his match with Rey Mysterio Jr. at um, World War Three nineteen ninety six kicks all sorts of ass. It did. It absolutely does. Yeah. I mean, it's and pretty much what- him. Beating the piss out of Mysterio for 15 minutes. Yeah, that's true. That was part of that period of WCW where they would have just incredible, like, sleeper matches in the pay-per-views. And it would be buried... It, that that type of match would be sandwiched between, like, uh, <laughs> like Big Bubba versus John Tenta. 
You know what always... <laughs> nice callback, man. You know what and, no, and no offense to either guy, because I actually kind of liked both guys, and both guys would have decent matches at times, but you, it'd be you know like kind of weird stuff like that, and then Ultima Dragon versus Ray. You know what's I'm remarkable sorry. about WCW crowds, though, is how open-minded they were at the time. Like, those guys would come out to, like, no reaction, and then the crowds would start popping for them because they were entertaining in the ring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did the. That was the thing about WCW crowds is if you could if you could work, they were really intrigued to see what you could do. So, um, yeah, you would see that sort of stuff all the time, and it was really cool. Yep. So then, Chris Jericho and the Lion Salt. <laughs> the Lion Salt. So, uh, from reading Jericho's first book, he states that um, he came up with the idea for the lion's halt and then spent an entire day with a, I think it was like a hanging bag or a crash dummy or something to perfect it because he had never seen anybody do something like it before. I don't know if he was the first and he just didn't see someone else do it or if he he was the, the genesis for that version of it. Uh, but it was always really cool and really unique to, to Jericho's style. I have a side question to that. Was it a moonsault he was trying in Smoky Mountain when he like broke his arm right before no. the big show? No, he was trying a shooting star press. Oh, okay. And he asked Lance Storm on the way out the door. He goes, did at least nail the shooting star press? And Lance said, not even close. You know, he had trouble hitting it for a while there. Remember when he came to WWE and they wanted him to be like six inches taller and he had those stupid lifts in his boots? Yeah, that 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 threw him off because he would come off of if if you can't <clears throat> draw the uh, the visual off the top of your head. Um, the lion salt is he would run, leap and springboard off the middle rope to moonsault to a laying opponent. But with those lifts, it would cause him to over-rotate a lot, or it would throw his balance off. So there were some cases where, like, he ended up um, kneeing some guys in the face whenever he'd do the lion salt in his early WWF run. Yeah, I remember a couple of those. I think he got Steven Regal good once. Probably. Uh, Not as bad as... um, you know, not as bad as uh, Billy Kidman's shooting star pre- shooting star press was sometimes, but you know, to to have because that the Lancelot had some snap to it as well. Not not like the Muda version did, but it it had some pretty good snap. To have that just smack you right in the face, I reckon that hurt. Let's see. I'm looking at the variations here. So I think an obvious one is the triple jump moonsault. Well, before we go into the triple jump, I did have someone who used a standard moonsault that I thought was notable. Okay. <clears throat> and it, 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 it was a moonsault, even if it wasn't exactly a full, uh, full rotation, the way that you might be thinking of it. But uh, to see Vader throw a moonsault... Oh yeah. oh yeah, I actually have that on my list. The Vader salt. Well, hey, run with it then. 
Well, I guess in in the true in the true like form of a moonsault, it's not really a moonsault. It's kind of he's kind of just like in a, doing like a weird like reverse angle splash. But I actually put that down on my list. Like I would give look. He gets all I, the way over. Nothing but love and respect for Vader. So I would count that kind of as a moonsault of a sort. Like I'll give, I'll give, like uh, I'll give that to Vader. Like he, it was impressive. I remember every time he did that. When I watched it way back in the '90s, it it just looked like death because he was so big and so powerful. It just looked amazing whenever he would pull off that move. So I definitely actually put that down in my notes. As something to note, like I, I would definitely give him the Vader salt. That was always like an incredibly visually impressive move. Didn't uh, Bam Bam Bigelow do one too? He did. I, I put, wow, you guys are all covering everything. I actually have a little <laughs> section. I have a section of my notes which I've titled in air quotes "Fat Guy Moon Salts." <laughs> which, no offense to these gentlemen, especially like poor Vader and and Bam Bam, they're both no longer with us, but. Uh, I always it's it's obviously incredibly impressive when you have like a really big guy because they shouldn't be that agile, but uh, Vader was that way. Bam Bam did actually do moon salts uh, a few times. Um, I think Blue Meanie did uh, the moon salts for a while. Yeah, uh, now, all of those I thought were kind of impressive. Blue Meanie was probably, I mean, he's more of like a comedy character, so his were essentially like less uh, impactful as Bam Bam and Vader, but. It was still kind of visually impressive. I would say that if we're if we're in the realm of big guy moonsaults, there's one. Uh, the guy is not real popular, but he'd still it's still notable of uh, Hugh Morris's No Laughing Matter moonsault. Oh wow, I completely forgot about that one. Yeah. Oh yeah, his was pretty good too. Yeah, he had a really good rotation moonsault. Three hundred pound guy with a barrel chest doing a really good rotation moonsault was something to see. And uh, you wouldn't see that working for Vince, but in WCW, you absolutely did. Yeah, definitely. So, <clears throat> big guys can moonsault too if they're if they're willing to do it, and uh, it looks really impressive. So. Also, also before we get into the next one, I'm going to disclaimer this that there's probably like five thousand luchadors that we're we've seen do it and we're not remembering. So I apologize for not having a luchador on the list. Well, it, you get to a certain point and it, you're going to like, we're talking about this as people who've been notable in our experience. So uh, not to undersell the luchadors or anything, but if you've seen six luchadors, all do the moonsault. It doesn't stand out the same way. Well, the thing, too, and I know Matt's watched a lot of Lucha Libre, too. Individual moves seem to, like, honestly mean a lot less in Lucha Libre than they do in, like, American wrestling. Yes, that's fair. Uh, moonsaults can kind of be, like, almost ubiquitous in Lucha Libre. So I, I, I agree. I don't want to give anyone, like, short thrift. Yeah. But if, if it becomes, like, so easily done that it's almost becoming like a transition move, then yeah, it's a little yeah. bit harder to kind of pick out a specific luchador to attribute a really great moonsault. Although I'm sure, I'm sure we could probably like 
rack our brains and come up Lucha, with some really Lucha talented Libre people. Is kind of like about the journey of the match, like more yeah. than it is about the moves. Like it's it's mm-hmm. a, it's a it's it's a different viewing experience. So like, I know when I watch a lot of Lucha, I don't remember the moves. I kind of just remember like the flow of the match. Yeah, it's so. it, Lucha scene. It's very different than American style is, especially Southern style, where Southern part of it is that you're supposed to take some time and let it breathe so that the the impact of what you're doing has time to, uh, to, to come home and then you have the opportunity to kind of build anticipation before you go on the next thing. Lucha kind of, and, and this is coming from... Uh, an outside point of view, I guess, but Lucha kind of seems to be the, um, we're keeping the gas pedal all the way to the floor the whole time. So this goes into this and goes into this and goes into this and goes into this. You'd have to tell me if I'm wrong about that, but from what I've seen, that's kind of what it looks like. It's Lucha's a lot about, um, there's a, Lucha's a very convoluted thing to talk about, but Lucha's, Lucha is about like, kind of the chaos of the match and then getting the proper people um making the comebacks at the right time getting the proper people isolated to get the pinfalls and hoping the heel ref doesn't screw you over in the process so kind of like playing uh playing one of those old n64 wrestling games with all four people plugged in yeah and (laughs) And Lucha is different depending on the falls. Like, the first fall tends to be, like, and the second fall tend to be more fast and furious, and then the third fall is kind of, like, where everything gets to breathe a little more. And, like, the match kind of, like, comes down a little bit. Okay. It just depends. Lucha's awesome, though, if you haven't watched it. You just have to kind of get used to it. There's There's a... A different culture that goes into it yeah okay yeah it's a actually describing is kind of like complicated is a good good way like it's it takes a bit to get into lucha uh i guess the style is, is quite different but also like the psychology of the entire like presentation and the flow of the match and just even how they present the characters is it's, it's different than what we're kind of tr- traditionally used to Dealing with like American North American wrestling, yeah. Um, we are in a in a small way. Uh, I can't speak necessarily to Mexico, but at least on the independent wrestling scene here in America, we are seeing a bit of a resurgence in in at least some specific luchadors. I know like um, Pentagon and Ray Phoenix, and uh, even uh, workers like Bandito. Like they're hugely popular right now in the indie scene, and they're putting on like some tremendous matches with uh, with tons of different people with each other. So we're kind of getting a little bit of a taste of that uh, on the indie scene. Which I mean, that's we could do an entire podcast on just how amazing the current American indie scene is. Uh, just different styles, different concepts and ideas that are being floated out there. Things are really kind of avant garde yeah. now. Just um. The fact that something like Joey Janela's Spring Break mm-hmm. exists like shows how amazing the indie scene is right now. Uh, I think he's 
I believe he's running it again uh, for WrestleMania weekend in 2019. I think it's I already. I think it's actually like immediately sold out. I would imagine because it. I think it had one of the best attendances in that building for for that weekend. I mean, did you? Did either of you see it by chance? I haven't. I've actually been meaning to get like the DVD of it. Um, so my- I, I heard it was a. It was both a great show and a completely bizarre show. <laughs> oh yeah, it's 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 out there. Like they have Virgil come out and like say like something, like some drunken thing, and like walk away, and the crowd like goes crazy. But my wife actually watched it with me, and she thought it was amazing. Not necessarily for the wrestling. I mean, like the clusterfuck she loved, just because it was so out there and stupid. And um, you'll like this because you know you can't do a pile driver because of the commission. Oh yeah. So they had the Invisible Man in there, and one of the guys got eliminated from the clusterfuck because he gave the Invisible Man a pile driver, and someone from the air quotations commissions came out and threw him out of the match. <laughs> That's pretty clever. But That's, my yeah. What my wife loved about it, what I'm looking forward to during this is, so you're watching this event, and it's this is like it. This is like from like 1 a.m. to like 4 a.m. So these announcers are just getting drunk as hell the whole time, and like there's at one point they have to like they had to send like a third guy out there to get like the announcers under control. My wife thought it was just amazing listening to these guys get drunker and drunker as it went on. <laughs> That's wow. why I need to get that DVD. And yeah, the, I had. Go ahead. The the PCO versus Walter match is insane, absolutely insane. I've heard that. Uh, well, we could we could talk like for an hour just on the the really bizarre, weird career career resurgence of Pierre Carl Vallette. who just signed with Ring of Honor. Signed a, like a, I think like a multi year deal with Ring of Honor. Uh, it, it, I actually had to ask uh, kind of mutual friends of ours uh, a few months back. I'm like, who who's a uh, Who's PCO? And then, like, it's Carl Ouellette. I'm like, what? what? Like, the pirate guy from mid-90s you know what uh, he did, WWF. He started making YouTube videos. Like, With, like, his him. manager? He just started making YouTube videos, and then they did that Walter match. And, I mean, it was insane. Like, it was this 50-year-old man that obviously just had no... Just did not give a crap what happened to his body. So, if anyone remembers uh, Pierre Carwellet from like '90s uh, WWF, he looks nothing like he did back then. No, he he. I don't know. I don't know if he's on like. I don't know if he's chemically enhanced or what, but he is like just a monster. He's like monstrous size. Like he is. He became a power lifter. Basically, he's huge. I think he's just a freak because remember he even had a TNA run as Mr. X. I briefly remember that. Um, he's just he's huge. Um, I have you seen some of the videos he's done with like I I think it's like his manager. Yeah, that's what got him. That's what started getting him some. I've some seen some. Again. I saw some recent ones. I basically done this year. Um, first off, his manager's name is Destro, which is weird because. <laughs> Because that's based on wait, like wait, a, wait. a G.I. G. Go, G. Joe. The Scottish arms dealer from the Cobra in G.I. Joe? Uh, very different, but uh, same name, apparently. Um, the video I saw, it, he's basically treated... Uh, PCO is treated like a Frankenstein monster. 
uh, where he's being shocked with uh, battery cables plugged up to a, a car battery, and Destro throws darts that then embed themselves into PCO's chest. And this was true. Like he actually, like this was legit. Like he shoot took darts into his chest and what? just like just like growled, <laughs> and it scared me. Um, yeah, he's like a weird freak of nature, but he has this entire career resurgence uh and i feel it was starting before the the walter match but the walter yeah. match like, sealed the deal ever since yeah. then he's been on yeah. fire but you know you know why pco is topical why because he does a one-legged he has a split-legged moonsault at 50 years old <laughs> and he did it too he did it during the walter match uh split-legged moonsault was one i was going to be taking this to yeah that's really impressive I wow. need we need I need to figure out how to get you guys that PCO versus Walter match because I don't know if it was oh it's on um he has it posted on he has it posted on um his YouTube channel. Oh really? Cool. Yeah. You guys have to watch that and we have to we have to talk about that in an episode because I don't know if it was good, but it might have been the craziest spectacle of a match I've ever seen. Because so Walter chops him to the point that his his chest doesn't turn purple, it turns black. Wow. Oh. Okay. Oh. I wonder is oh. uh is is Spring Break on uh Smart Mark videos? You can I bought it I bought it streaming for like ten bucks on um the whatever evolves thing is. I bought it on there for like ten bucks. Hmm. Last year. Hmm. <clears throat> okay, so I'm gonna try and drag us back over to the topic at <laughs> hand. We got um, way sidetracked with PCO yeah. talk. We we did a little bit. Um, this since we brought up the split leg and moonsault, uh, very I think it's a very very cool uh, variation. The first person I remember seeing do it was uh, Rob Van Dam. Um, yes. Of course, Van Dam did a lot of like really cool different look stuff that was very different from what other people of the time did um not quite as like it wouldn't stand out as much now but you know it was very cool and um the fact that van damme <clears throat> would just would just jump from the mat a split-legged moonsault incidentally if if you're trying to put a finger on what we're talking about is when you jump and you basically fall and let your thighs go across the top rope in the corner. That's why it's the split-legged. Um, <clears throat> and let that impact rotate you back for a faster rotation. Uh, Van Dam could just grab the ropes, jump, and do, this, do his, you know, kick his feet out in one very fluid motion that looked very, very cool. Um, and, and for just the for just a straight-up split-legged moonsault, uh, you would know uh, contemporary, um, you would know is uh, Naomi's finish. Uh, I'm doing, I don't know, they call it the, the, the glow salt or something? I'm not sure. Hmm. I have no idea. Okay, fair enough. But, um, yeah, I was that, that, that one always impressed me, and um, I think it's a great choice as a finisher myself. I would look it up on 
I would look it up on Wikipedia, but they took move lifts off because they're useless. They did. Some sort of highbrow campaign or something. Um, then I that'll... For, uh, oh, go, go ahead, ahead, Matt. No, no, go ahead. Uh, I think for modern day um, practitioners of the split leg moonsault, uh, John Morrison. Oh, he yeah, does, he does. He yeah. has the, the starship pain. Yep. This I was going to dovetail into that because he does okay. a split legged corkscrew moonsault. Ah, uh, there you go. He also so. does a moonsault. Um, well, he does a Spanish fly, which is a moonsault where you like. So, what a Spanish fly is, is. You pretty much go to the top rope with someone. They're facing in the ring. You're facing away, and you moonsault with them, and you like take them over and like face slam them on the ground. Is kind of what a Spanish fly is. I actually have that one on my list. Uh, Amazing Red. I think uh, Spanish <laughs> announce team did it too. Yeah, this is actually going way back. But Paul Birchall, if anyone remembers him, he oh, was doing. Yeah, I he oh, did that for the a bit. pirate. Yeah. Yeah, I actually liked Paul. Paul, Paul Birchall. Like I was a, I was kind of a fan, especially when he was doing that uh, pirate gimmick. Uh, do you guys recall the story behind that? Uh, I think so, but I'll let you tell it. And if I'm wrong, then I'll tell my. So I don't know if this has actually been confirmed as legitimate, but uh, knowing how he is, I fully believe it. But uh, they gave him, they gave, they gave Paul Birchall like a series of gimmicks in uh, the WWE. None of them really took off. But they finally gave him a very uh, Johnny Depp as Jack Sparrow <laughs> uh, in Pirates of the Caribbean themed gimmick, where he was uh, he was he was some sort of like pirate. Uh, he I I even feel like they gave him like dreadlocks and uh, like a do rag. Remember, he it used was, to give it, out like beads to the crowd, and it'd take him like ten minutes to get to the ring. Yeah, it was it was something like to that level of like ripping off Jack Sparrow, but it actually got him over with the, with the crowd. Um, the fans actually kind of like that. And then allegedly Vince McMahon, who is not topical on a uh, pop culture, saw the gimmick and was like, I don't understand why he's a pirate. I think they straight <laughs> and, like, up gave him like the pirates of the Caribbean music. It was something that was close enough to not be sued. Like just close enough that they couldn't get like a, a copyright violation. Uh, he was getting over though, but then Vince apparently like put the kibosh on it because he did not understand why people would like a pirate because he was completely like not aware of that Pirates of the Caribbean was actually a big thing. So that's that's similar, but a variation on what I had heard because it mm -hmm. was it was that Burchill like pitched doing the pirate gimmick. And then Vince didn't understand why people would care. And he's like, no, no, no. There have been like three really popular pirate movies that have come out the last few years. Let me do this. And Vince is like, yeah, 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 yeah whatever, whatever. I don't I don't get it, but fine, do that. And it starts getting over. And, and then they just, they never did anything with him. Like they just kind of mm. didn't have him on TV. I'm not sure which version's true. He I could have dreadlocks. I could see either version... I could see both versions being true, let's be honest. Ooh, he did, like, he would swing on a rope, too. I forgot about that. Yeah, he did. He totally <laughs> did. Like, they I, really ripped off the gimmick. I did completely forget about that. Wow. Him, sw him swinging on the ropes reminds me of uh, the Goonies. 
I'm, it's our time down here. I meant like sloth. <laughs> we, you know what? Well, this is like a callback because we've mentioned cooties on this podcast before. Oh, we, we didn't have. just mention. Yes, it is. You it is threatened, a, Matt. You threatened to drive to Kentucky, and, and I would still do that. Goonies is a fantastic movie. I cannot believe you haven't seen it eight oh, thousand times. Chad hasn't seen it. Yeah, I cannot believe you, you haven't seen it eight thousand times, like I have. No, like I saw the very end of it on TV once. It's one of Sean Astin's uh, best performances. I would and, agree with that. And you know what? The the funny thing is, he's actually had a lot of good performances. Sean Astin, underrated actor. He was great in uh, Stranger Things season two. Yeah. Uh, poor poor Bob. Bob. Yeah. I told my wife and I made a pact after that scene that if a hell beast is about to bite me to death and she can't save me, to shoot me with the gun instead of the hell beast. <laughs> instead of letting the hell beast eat me alive. Ah. Uh. Yeah, that was that was that was really that was heartbreaking to have that go down. By the way, spoilers for a two-year-old show if you haven't seen it. But I just like how they made you think he was gonna be okay, and there's like, bam. Yeah. Done. And yeah. he made he made an impression on um, on the people around him too. That's the other thing is like. Bob's contribution was not like, oh, he, he got people out. It's like, no, he, he made an impact on their lives and who they are, too. Because, you know, at the end of the end of the show, there's uh, is it's Will, right? Will's drawing of him on the on the fridge. Yeah. So. So uh, the one thing that I don't think I've ever seen Sean Austin do is uh, Moonsault. So, <laughs> yeah, that so, was a uh, that was an outtake from Rudy. Oh, was it? Oh <laughs> man. So let's uh, let's talk about the triple jump moonsault because there are two very important um, performers of said move. Mm-hmm. We actually uh, touched on one, I think, on the the last episode we released. Yep. Actually, there's three. So, uh, Sabu would be our first one. Yeah, yes. he's probably the innovator. Okay, yeah. so. Uh, just just so people know, Sabu's triple jump moonsault is a... He would set up a chair in the ring. He would run, jump on the chair, jump from the chair to the top rope. And then, usually, he'd be standing on the top rope and he'd, like, wobble as he tried to get into position to do the moonsault thing right. And, like, be wobbling back and forth. And the guys on the outside are looking at him. Wondering what's going to happen next, because let's be honest, that's a fair question. And that, you know, the the idea was he would then moonsault from the top rope, either onto the people outside or to a laying opponent in the ring. But what would actually happen about half the time is that he would not be doing a moonsault and he would fall off the top rope in some fashion and then go try and do it again. Ah, uh, Sabu. <laughs> I was there's trying to, yeah, trying to paint a word picture there, but there's there's a charm to Sabu, and that charm is is when he tries a spot over and over again because he can't get it right. <laughs> For like very, he, yeah, or just there, that is a, charming, yes, or when he just throws like a straight up tantrum in the ring. <laughs> 
I don't want to dump on the guy. You know, he's done more in that business than I ever got close to doing. But man, you some of the I, stuff sometimes. I'm gonna give Sabu. I'm gonna give Sabu a big, a big. Um, I'm gonna give him some big props right here, in that. It truly is amazing that a guy worked in wrestling as long as he did, and he kept that aura about him the entire time. That's true. Like, even into his, like, ECW run and WWE, I mean, he got over in that ECW thing, and he still had, like, that Sabu, like, mystique to him. Yeah, that... This dude's crazy, and you don't know what's going to happen, Mystique. That's, uh... Yeah, that's true. I'm sorry, Matt. It sounded like you were going to say something, and I cut you off. No, no. I I, I wholeheartedly agree. That is part of this <laughs> the charm of Sabu, when he would fuck something up and then do it, like, ten more times <laughs> until he finally hits it. Well, remember they did that Elimination Chamber, and the crowd just died when they got when Sebu was like out so quick yeah <laughs> you could always count on him to do something crazy maybe not well but something crazy so yeah um triple jump moonsault Sabu. who were your your other notable users on that front well let us go with uh, a certain fallen angel a great uh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think he's probably the most well-known um, user of that. And then the the most a, a more recent WWE signing of Io Shirai. Oh, they she signed. That's cool. I didn't know that. I didn't know that her. Um, I didn't know that she'd signed contract with them. Yeah, she signed right before the May Young <laughs> Classic. I thought she was just someone they brought in for it. That's. Oh, it's going to be really interesting. Um, I, I want to touch on Daniels for a minute because Daniels Triple Jump Moonsault, also known as the BME, which stands for the best moonsault ever. Um, I'm actually kind of kind of inclined to agree with because uh, he starts, he goes to the corner, he will grab the top rope and he will jump up to the second rope. Then he will use the bounce from the second rope to jump to the top, and he it's he'll he kind of like rotates his arms and almost claps as he springboards blind back off the top rope in this fantastic looking moonsault. He um he was in one of the best matches I've ever seen live, which was War Machine versus um, the Addiction in like a street fight in Ring of Honor. Hmm. I have not seen that one. You know, all all kudos to actually to Christopher Daniels because he is he's like late forties and is still like pretty like top tier, like great putting on great matches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And you gotta you gotta love a guy that wears like a general's outfit to the ring now. <laughs> yeah. And I love I love the way he does that though, but when he has a belt, like he does like the belt to hang like off of his pants. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, that's the uh, kind of the way the belt is on. It, like, there's a belt on his on his gear, right? Yeah. Um, and he's he's what he what he's really underrated for at Ring of Honor is he really 
he's not that great in the ring anymore, but like he really like he still has that star aura to him. Mm-hmm. And also, one of my favorite TNA feuds is um, AJ Styles and Christopher Daniels versus LAX. Mm, oh yes. yeah, that's. I was actually going to say uh, one of my favorite matches is Christopher Daniels, AJ Styles, and Samoa Joe for oh, the X yeah, Division Championship. Mm. That was two thousand five, I think. Yep. Yes. And part of what blows my mind about that match is what, like, the last half of it was all called on the fly. Because um, the finish was supposed to be um, AJ does the enziguri on the belt into Joe's face, but something happened and screwed it up. So, yeah, that's uh, excellent, you know. Daniels is an excellent choice for uh, for a great moonsault user. His 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 triple jump means moonsault's a thing of beauty. Um, so tell me, let let's let's paint the picture again. How uh, is uh, Io Shirai's similar or different? Um, it's about it's pretty similar to his. Pretty similar to his. Yeah. I, I started to say similar to the ones we talked about, and then I realized I better say different because we did talk about Sabu's triple jump moonsault. She's <laughs> it it it's a it was a little it's a little wonky in the WWE ring, but I think she was adjusting to um the size of the ring. Mm-hmm. But hers is a pretty crisp, nice one. I know Matt's seen it mm-hmm. at least once. Yeah. But it's a nice it's a nice looking moonsault. Okay. Well the last variant I had on my list um is one that's that's a bit more physically taxing, um, which is the double rotation moonsault. Um, the only name I could conjure up off the top of my head that I'd, that I'd seen do it was Ricochet. But uh, I don't know. I wanted to hear what you guys thought. I actually, yeah, I actually have, he's the only one <laughs> that I've actually had, and I have seen, he did it most recently at the uh, the last NXT TakeOver in the War Games match. I believe that was the excuse for not having the uh, the, the roof yeah, on the, it, right? Yeah, that was a that was basically the entire reason they didn't have the the ceiling on the match, so he could actually do that move. Yeah, I mean that's that's as far as big spots go, that's a really a really good big spot to have. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, just gets stupid with how like many flips he can do like in the middle of the air you know like on one hand i kind of understand the mechanics of it but on the other hand i don't understand how you can coax your body into doing all of that you mean how he can how the average human being might be able to do two turns and he manages like five yeah, yeah, basically something like that. There, there are people who are able, like, in the middle of doing, um, in the middle of doing something, make adjustments, like, in the air to, to that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, said Ricochet, you know, doing a double rotation moonsault doesn't seem to be much of anything to him. It's, it just seems 
a pretty simple spot to do, but it, for a guy that wasn't ever going to do a moonsault, there's no way that we're going to yeah. try this. Um, one other one I want I was going to mention early on, just as a contemporary user that I thought was impressive. Um, uh, Charlotte Flair uses a moonsault um, in her matches a lot, which you can see that she was a gymnast because her rotation is really, really good. Uh, the thing about Charlotte's is that whenever she does it, she's usually landing on her feet as opposed to landing flat with it. But uh, it's st- it looks excellent. Well, it's gotten quiet, so I guess I'll have to ask, do you guys have any other uh, moonsault uh, guys, folks that utilize the moonsault that we'd like to talk about? Uh, I'm a blank. Uh, I'd actually like to give an honorable mention. Oh, absolutely. Uh, because uh, Only an honorable mention because he was uh, kind of of advanced age when he did this. But when Terry Funk started like busting, oh, yes. busting out the moonsault in like late '90s ECW, I would always be like, just marking out like, what the hell is Terry Funk doing? <laughs> he's he. I don't think he actually was this old, but he. I was like, oh my god, he's like in his sixty. <laughs> he's probably like fifty something years old, but you know what the doing best, crazy stuff. Yeah, you know what the best thing about his moonsault was is it was like. He was an old man, and it looked about as creaky as you you would think he would be at that point in his life. Yeah, like it and wasn't a it wasn't a crisp, pretty moonsault. It was like, and it was like sideways. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's actually a, a story that um, <laughs> there's actually a story that uh, that because the first time that uh, Cornette said he ever saw Funk throw a moonsault as he did it in Smoky Mountain. And he runs over to check on him. Like, after after the match, Terry comes back through and people are helping him to the back. And Cornette goes running up to Terry. He goes, Terry, Terry, what the hell was that? What did you just do? And, and Funk goes, I don't know, Corny, but I don't think I'm going to do it again. <laughs> I don't know, Corny. I don't know. I don't know, Corny. <laughs> You know, they oh. went a little too far with the whole, like, because we, we, we discussed November to Remember last episode. Yeah. And they, they went a little too far with it, but I, I in retrospect, the whole, like, the Terry-Tommy um, Dreamer, like, exchange was kind of funny, just because, like, those guys' voices get it. At least they get in my head. Where it's like, yeah. you're a goddamn coward, Tommy. Why didn't, <laughs> why didn't you pick me as part of your partner? I was your, I was your mentor. And then Tommy's like, towards like when <laughs> later on the show, he's like, I- "I'm not gonna hit you. I'm not gonna hit you, Terry." I can't do his like Long Island or whatever. Yeah. Where the fuck he's from? His, his, his New Yonkers. York accent. Yeah. Yonkers. Yeah. I'm not gonna hit you, Terry. I'm not gonna do it. You goddamn cow! I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit you, Tommy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit you. I'm gonna punch you in your goddamn. <laughs> the, the, well, we'll have, actually, I feel we should do an entire podcast on this one match. But the whole the Terry Funk, uh, Jerry Lawler empty arena match is oh, yeah. to this day like it's thirty years later probably or 
or that was like early eighties. I feel that still is a is a work of art. It is a piece of. A he is B. he is so off the charts for that match. It is. We have to. I'm not joking. Like we should watch that and do an entire podcast just breaking it down because it is Terry Funk at his best. Like if you you cannot appreciate like how great, legitimately great Terry Funk is as a performer until you see this match. He just goes. He's just crazy. And at the end, when he like injures his eyes, oh my god, I can't see. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just. He's like crying <laughs> out. It's amazing. Oh, Matt, you you bust out some impressions I would not have guessed, but I enjoy it so much when you do. <clears throat> That's my favorite part of uh, Mick Foley's story about Hell in the Cell. Is um, he talks about how like he lost consciousness and like Undertaker, I guess, apparently choke slammed Funk out of his shoes. Yeah, because so like, they weren't and- laced. Yeah, and he wakes up and all he sees is Terry Funk's like shoe next to him, and he's like, "What the hell?" Yeah, where am I? Yeah, what? A, what? Yeah, that was. I remember. Uh, I remember reading about that. It's just the, the, the sheer confusion at what happened and why, uh, why in the world there's just a shoe laying there in the ring. But I. I agree we need to do Lawler Funk because there's a lot. It's only like a 10-minute match, but there is a lot of meat to that one. There is. <laughs> I have a link to it saved. I, ha- I have not been able to carve out the time to uh, to watch it yet, but I'm, that, I've am i got a link to it. and I'm... That is um just slightly off topic, but that is, that is my benchmark match of... That is the match I judge it against. Like when you start talking about like the greatest matches ever, like if you're if I put it above that match, you're starting to get into like the best matches ever Mm -hmm. because that's like that is my bridge between like the super good and the all time like great matches. Yeah, gotcha. Well, I believe we've talked about all about the moonsault that we can talk about and some other stuff besides. Yeah, (laughs) so. I want to say thank you, everybody, for joining us for this episode. Thanks to uh, Matt and Brad for uh, for being with us here tonight. We've been in three corners. You're in the fourth. Uh, we'd love to hear from you on social media. Um, message us, post to us, DM us, whatever. And um, remember, Collar and Elbow, Four Corners podcast for 10% off. Thank you all for joining us. Have a good night. <laughs>